Well, hello there, and welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, we have been on something of a hiatus for the last couple months. Uh, it's been very quiet on this channel. One could say it's been a very quiet place around here. Yeah, which is kind of perfect, because that's the name of the film we're going to be discussing today. What are the odds? Um, how crazy would it be if I actually plan to take two months off just so I can make that joke? Like, I've done crazier things. I, I really have, so... Just gonna let you ponder that. Um, so a quiet place. Uh, my short review, I'll give it right off the bat. Jim Halpert meets Shut the Fuck Up. That's the that's the whole film. Uh, thanks for watching the Deadly Analysis podcast. Tune in next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so this this movie, I totally dug this movie. I, I love this was a good horror movie to me. Um, it's nowhere near a perfect horror film. I mean, it did it, like it didn't scare me very much, but I think. You know, as we've discussed a billion times over, horror films are are more than just being about like raw fright. Um, there's the more than just an element of like being scared in a good horror film. Like to me, a good horror film is multi-layered. There's a kind of deep resonance. And I think this film actually has something like that. At least it did for me. So I'm excited to explore what exactly that was for me with you guys. Because I think why this film, like to the degree that it scared me, I think the reason is probably going to be a little different for me than it is for you guys, but I could be wrong. So I'm curious to kind of talk about why. Um, you know, without going too far into it, for me, what made this film really scary was the anxiety, really, there's just the palpable anxiety in this film of keeping your family together and alive in a world that's doing everything it can to kill them. Um, and that scared me so much in this film, like more than the monsters. I mean, the monsters wouldn't have mattered without that. I mean, it just was so like, I felt so, so much anxiety in this movie for that reason. Anyway, so we can get into that. But what did, what did you guys think? Uh, Jim, uh, what, what did, what did you think of A Quiet Place? I, I tried to, I, you almost spoke too fast for me to sign uh, everything that you were saying now. So uh, I, I did that on purpose. I totally did that on purpose. It was a it was an attempt, and then I was like, "Oh wow, he's using words I don't know." Um, so that was uh, that was tough. I had to finger spell more than I had hoped. Anyway, I liked it. I liked it fine. I thought it was a very. I thought it was almost a perfectly made genre film. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in hearing from you, Noah, is uh, what the deeper levels and what the deeper resonance you had of. Uh, the, the deeper experience you had of this, because I went in hoping that this would be 2018's Get Out, um, which was a great horror film with uh, larger socially relevant themes going on. And what I got in A Quiet Place instead was a great horror film. I'm not complaining, but it is. it did fall short of something that was socially relevant that was that was reaching for um some really high uh and, and interesting ideas so I'm, I'm actually curious to hear what you have to say about that the other thing that i do want to there are two things that i want to, to highlight about the uh, why i think it's a a technically um amazing film is first the sound design it's amazing that a film called the a quiet place has some of the best sound design and what I hope actually will win the best sound design, uh, sound and best sound mixing Oscar this year. Um, I'm calling it in April, which is sort of like calling the World Series during spring training. Uh, but the, the sound design in this film is amazing, especially how they shut the sound off whenever they're in the perspective of the deaf daughter. I thought that was a genius move on the uh, part of John Krasinski. Um, 
The other thing is I'm interested, sometimes this worked for me, sometimes it didn't. I think this film is a study in revealing to the revealing information to the audience in order to heighten suspense like the control of information plot information that this film has is really interesting and and that's something that i'd I'll probably we'll probably dive a little bit deeper into that as things go on but those are sort of my opening thoughts so, uh yeah i'm curious curious to hear what everybody else says yeah, it's certainly being treated like Get Out. You know, I, I agree with you that I don't think it had the same social resonance. I mean, there's probably social elements to this about maybe on the issue of disability. And uh, I read some articles on the Huffington Post, which is uh, like I'm, I consider myself a liberal. And some of the articles were just so way left. I couldn't like my head was spinning about just um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, like treating it as a as a as a as something that is um powerful in this movie versus oh, well it, it acknowledging that it's actually a disability so i read some articles on that but it didn't have the same social power i think as like you know the the obvious racial stuff and get out um and there there were some differences but for me i it it really and i think i'm going to be the only one that felt this weird thing with this movie um it just made me all the more not want to have children i know that sounds insane and it just i this is one of the things what 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 i've noticed is that i bring my shit to horror films I, and how many times we've talked about the horror films that I've chosen, and it's really me talking about things I'm going through that I'm seeing in films. I, I, it's so weird to see that. But this this had that for me. I, I, look, the monsters are scary, right? But I, look, I've seen The Mist, right? This is, this was, there was a little bit of mist in this. There was a little bit of signs in this, like an enhanced version of, like a much better version of signs in this uh, film. It felt like that. Um, but the monsters didn't really get to me. It was just watching John Krasinski try to keep his family intact. Like knowing that in one fell swoop, um, well, literally, I mean, spoilers. I mean, we always talk about spoilers when we do these, but like in one fell swoop, he lost his, his son just fast because of making a noise. And one of the conversations I've had with my wife when we decided we weren't gonna have kids when, and, or if we were and, and you know, we ended up ultimately deciding not to, one of the main reasons was, just the the anxiety of knowing that I'm bringing a I'm bringing a conscious creature into the world that has the capacity to suffer, is that that bothers me. And I don't mean that in any normative way. I've gotten into trouble having this conversation with some of my wife's friends in the past. I, I don't mean that normatively. Like, how dare you have kids? I, I'm not I'm not saying that. But for me personally, I I'm scared shitless of creating this being that could potentially have every. I mean, there's so much in this world that wants to kill kids, people, humans, adults, like. Everything in this world is out to kill you to some degree. There's a lot of suffering in this world. And this movie was like a reminder that you've worked so hard to create this very beautiful, loving, innocent being. And in his case, three of them, right? I think there was three kids. And, and you know, the world is such a place that do, do this, I mean, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are doing everything they can to hold on to what they have. And as the, the rope just keeps getting tighter around their family's neck and it's, that scared me. I mean, there were so many things, just a simple nail on a board caused this domino effect right on the stairs, caused this domino effect that literally almost leads to the entire family being decimated. And just watching that left me feeling like, I, God, I, I don't want that responsibility. Maybe that sounds horrible. Like I just, it's, I, I can't, I don't want to do that to someone else. Like be in a world where someone could just, you know, I could be walking down the street with my kid and they could trip, hit their head and just be in a coma, like on like freak accidents. You know what I mean? And so I felt that in this movie. I don't, I'm probably the only one maybe, but it just made that anxiety was just there for me the whole time. 
uh, bugged me to death. I, I just, and then you could hear people eating popcorn and you could hear people coughing and, and it just, it took that anxiety and like threw it all over me. You know what I mean? I was just like sitting there. I was like this. So it's one of those times where I was like, Oh God, please don't die. That, when that kid died, I'm like, that's it. I called my wife. We're not having, now we're definitely not having kids anyway. So yeah. I actually sense that too. No, I mean, I didn't quite sense it so much in a, in, in a personal way in the way you did, but I definitely felt that one of the overlying themes of the film, of course, is the the struggles and the difficulty of keeping your family together, right? All the threats to the family, you know, uh, obviously, you know, one of the horror works often by metaphor and indirection. And, you know, in, in, the, in the world where it hasn't been taken over by alien creatures or whatever, there are other threats and that, that, that people do have to sort of struggle and fight and go to extreme lengths to make sure that everyone is safe and okay. Um, that's certainly... Uh, uh, this isn't the first movie that has explored that theme, but I think it did explore it pretty well. Uh, I and I too sensed sort of the, the the social relevance again, not as heavy as Get Out, but definitely the question about your know, questions about the social construction of disability, um, and of course simply the importance of having a, a, a deaf actor play a, a main role, which is something that you don't really see very much uh, in film. And so it was really, I thought, a, a fantastic performance by Millicent Simmons uh, as the daughter. Um, and uh, uh, I I hope I see more of her. I really I'm, I'm curious to see what she does next because. Uh, it would really be tragic if this was like her only real turn in mainstream cinema. Uh, I, I hope that uh, she has a good agent and that uh, they, they find her someplace else to go from here. Before we go on, is is she going? Is she the one who's in the heredit, uh, hereditary or heredit? It's hereditary, right? The new trailer for the new horror film. I think that's her in it. Um, I, I saw the trailer a couple times and it looked familiar. I probably should have Googled this before we started our hangout. I'm looking up her IMDb right now. Yeah, but she looks like um, one of the main characters in Hereditary. Maybe it's not. But no, she, she, I, not. she, she was not. in a film called Wonderstruck uh, last year. Uh, okay. and, and other than that, that's her only other credit besides. Ah. Wow. Wow. What do you think, Ben? Do you like the movie? Honestly, um, I'm, I'm having some trouble deciding how I feel about the movie. Um, Echoing everything that you've said so far, um, they did some really important things here, and I think it's very cool that they they went the direction that they did. They had a deaf actress come in and made that a huge part of the plot. Um, you know, that's that's all very interesting. You know, the sound design is very interesting. I love that when they even took the perspective of the monster, and you could hear all of those amplified noises about the the egg timer. You know, all of these different things. It's very very cool. Um, but I'm a little bit disappointed that they used such a safe plot. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, usually I'm, I'm not such a, a stickler on the plot. Like, it's not hugely important. A lot of the things they built around the plot were very cool in this movie. But, I mean, it's that same old, you know, po post-apocalyptic world where we have one story of a family trying to survive and doing the best they can. And at the end, you know, they find a solution, right? Um, I think we're okay with spoilers on this this podcast, correct? So, you know, I, it, I don't, I don't know, man, like the, the plot just really, the, the, <laughs> the overusedness of that particular storyline, I think just really just stood out way too much for me. And especially leading up to the end where you have, you know, the, this very cool resolution, right? You know, what, how they, how they integrate the cochlear implant into the weapon that, you know, becomes the weakness for the monsters. That's awesome. That's great. But, you know, where you end up having this this almost like Sam Raimi style cheesiness where she cocks the shotgun, you know, I, I don't know, man, like there, there was just too much 
too much in the foundation of this film that really bothered me to to make it one of the greats. I think it was good, but there's <laughs> tired plot, cheesy ending. Eh. So let, let me let me ask you this one then, Ben. If uh, uh, if early on in production, John Krasinski had taken the concept to you, what advice would you have given him to to, to avoid that problem? How would you have changed sort of the basic layout of the film? Well, that's the thing. I, it would be a little bit difficult to offer that advice because anything that I would say, this would be a really cool story to to build all of this awesome stuff around. It would probably be something that's already been done before. I don't necessarily consider myself a creative writer of any um, of any note, but what I definitely would have probably pushed for is something a little bit less safe. My my instinct here is that they went with a safe plot so that they could push the boundaries in other ways and kind of like you know maybe make it a little bit more palatable um, and kind of integrate it more with audiences into what they find familiar. But I really would have encouraged them to push for a more original, unique plot. By safe, do you mean that um, it, that it all that it was kind of an isolation piece in that sense that it all took place in in one setting, like on their farm? Is that what you mean? Like, what can you cash out? What exactly you're? Uh, what uh, exactly? There, there are movies that that do that kind of thing. Like, I think one of them called Buried or something like that, where the entire thing takes place within the source within the space of a coffin. You know, and it's this guy trying to get out. Um, you know, that's a really interesting film, but <laughs> there, there's not a lot of complexity to it. It's very good. Um, but it's in one small space pretty much the entire time. I don't think that's the issue. I, I really think it comes down to the fact that you just have this narrative that's been used so many times. You know, I mean, you, you have the post-apocalyptic world. Okay. You've got some scary monsters out there that are sort of ill-defined. Okay. You know, you've, you're centering around a family and they're, they're like their makeshift sort of survival thing. I mean, like how different is this from The Walking Dead, to be honest? It also reminded me of, uh, I guess it was last year, uh, It Comes at Night. There was some uh, thematic similarity oh, yeah. between the two films, but I, I think that A Quiet Place was was the better of those two films. Oh, sure, absolutely. I would say that's, um, you know, what they did um, sort of wrap the plot in um, definitely made it much better. You know, as I said, I, I think it's very good. I think it deserves its score on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. You know, as far as critics are concerned, I think, you know, it deserves a high score. Um, but there's just the, that that foundation. I don't know. They just they should have <laughs> they should have pushed it a little more. They should have went a little further with something a little more original. So well, let, let me ask you this. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me uh, was they could have be, uh, pushed the basic premise even more uh, to a greater extreme. I felt, and uh, this isn't to do with the plot. Again, I recognize Ben, you're talking about the plot. But what would you guys have felt? If they if they literally made it like a almost completely silent movie, like if there had been no spoken no no spoken words, uh, if it, every single uh, uh, dialogue interaction was done through uh, um, sign language, um, if they if there was no score at all, if there was only the ambient sounds. I mean, I, I don't know if that would have been better, but I found as I was watching, it, I found myself wondering how would this film play out if they really pushed it that far. Um, I think that. So when Noah was talking about the idea of this being about the um, anxiety surrounding having children and then keeping those children safe and properly caring for them, one of the things that occurred to me was the subplot about whether the father and the whether the daughter believes that the father loves her. Um, I think there's no question in our mind as, as viewers that the father, of course, loves his children. I mean, we see that action. I, I actually don't think that they gave the daughter enough 
evidence to suggest that that the father doesn't love her but that that theme then would probably have um been downplayed because i think that moment by the waterfall where where the father and the son can talk and there's actually sort of a break in the anxiety you can almost breathe i i, I think when they finally spoke was the one moment where krasinski as the director you know, it, it sort of uh, let you breathe a little bit, so put um, let up on the gas a little bit. And I think the film needed that because it, otherwise we're just going to be bundles of nerves throughout the entire film. And I think that, you know, just letting us go, okay, we're all right now. And and that's, that's exactly how the characters felt. So I, as an audience member, I felt the way the characters felt when they were by the waterfall. Um, and so I don't know if that would have fully improved the film. I think in order to satisfy the things that Ben is talking about, you do have to do a radical reconstruction of the plot. And like Ben, I don't know how to do that. I think that one of the things you're saying, Ben, is very similar to what I said at the outset, was that I think that this is a good genre film. And it's not reaching for the type of it's not reaching for anything higher um, by doing something wholly original in terms of its storyline. It's doing something wholly original, well, not wholly original, relatively original in terms of its filmmaking and its technical prowess. That's where it's it's breaking ground. It's not breaking ground in terms of plot. That, for me, is fun. Like, I'm not... That's why I'm giving the film three and a half stars, not a full five or four and a half or four plus. Um, so that's that's my response to both, actually, all three of you. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What do the rest of you think about the idea of this being a totally silent, silent film? I, I think that definitely would have taken away one of the things I enjoyed, which was that waterfall scene where there's a kind of catharsis, like there's a release when they talk. And I... I don't know about you guys, but I was tense as shit watching this. I needed that. I needed that moment to kind of. I would have. I would have left the theater being a little. It would have been a little too much for me. Um, and not to say that there's an. I don't have anything against silent films. We've done. We've done a couple of silent films, but I think what Garrett is describing may be a little different. Um, but I. I just. I needed. I just. I needed that part of it to to make the film feel whole. Uh, the film make me feel whole when I was watching it. Kind of. I needed that. So. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not saying necessarily I think it would have been a better film, but again, like I said, I was just, I was curious because, you know, and, and Ben's comment about it being not sort of not daring enough in some ways, I think that would have been more daring. I mean, I think the 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 full, like, you know, maybe final 45 minutes of the film is basically just nonstop tension. I thought it was phenomenally paced, strangely structured in some ways. I and mean, if we want to talk about the structure in more detail later, maybe we, we can, but that, that last 45 minutes was just, you know, nonstop tension. And I, if I, if the whole film had been that, if there hadn't been any let up, I mean, maybe it would have been too much, but maybe it would have been pretty fantastic. It's the kind of thing I would have loved to have like been in the editing room for and seen a cut that, 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 that played with, with, with that more extreme version of the, of the, of the concept. You know what I would have loved to have said when I was in the editing room? Why, oh why, if we are going to spend all of this time making this apparatus of silence around this farm, from the sand to, I mean, just the millions of things that they did, why the hell do they still have hanging picture frames in their house? That, Garrett, I thought of you when I saw that, Garrett. I was like, Garrett is going to notice that the moment he sees that, because that Actually, bothered me. 
Believe it or not, I didn't. But now that you mention it, yeah, that's a serious problem. But what I did, what did occur to me and did kind of frustrate me, and again, in, in the nitpicking variety, is why they didn't have more decoys. I mean, they had the, the the fireworks, which obviously was an effective decoy. But it seems like you know, I would have been carrying that little uh, um, uh, rocket ship around with me, and then if you know if something happens, you turn on and you throw it away, and then the monster goes after the decoy. Like they should have been surrounded with decoys. I think that that was that would have been one of the first tactics that I employed. Yeah, and even bells somewhere else, and I, I mean, even turning the entire house into. Yeah, well, not the not the entire, but turning a place into just a wall of sound, like playing, uh, playing, you know, music in in some other location far away from them. Yeah, I think that's. But then, of course, you run into the problem of like once you turn the music on, like you have to run pretty fast to get the fuck out of there. Uh, but yeah, there's. Uh, I see your point that more decoys. Once again, though, it it. it I wonder if we're treating the film and treating the universe of the film with more, are, are we reading too much into, are we playing in in John Krasinski's sandbox a little bit too much? Or is this, you know, is this sort of the type of nitpicky film criticism that we should be engaged in as critical thinkers? Um, half of me is, is uh, of the, like I didn't, as I was watching the movie, I wasn't thinking un I wasn't thinking like, well, why don't they do this? This is clearly the most logical solution into this uh in this situation. Why aren't they doing this? As I did during Cough Infinity War. Um, but uh there's there are some issues. I, I don't think I don't see as many issues in in uh in this film as I do in others. So you're totally right. I mean, it's it, the the sins in this film are totally forgivable. They're 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 not uh, large things. That just caught me. The picture frames caught me, and I I don't look for these things. But I and that and I caught that. I was like, oh God, guys, come on, really, stop. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I I think I can forgive. I think I can forgive it from all the other because of all the other stuff it gave me. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I can always nitpick little things, but uh, um, the the I know the film succeeds when the little nitpicky things don't distract from my overall enjoyment of the film. But I did want to come back to something because about the sort of the more social uh, sort of aspects of the film, uh, because we've touched on a couple of them already. One of the things that I caught in myself, which, you know, I wrestled with for maybe a good 10 minutes in the middle of the film, was when they first pan away. So you know, we have the, you know, the introductory thing, idea, which takes place like three months after the, the outbreak or the landing or whatever it was. Uh, and then we jump ahead to a year and then we cut forward and we see that Emily Blunt is pregnant. And when, when we first see she's pregnant, I had this thought in my head, like, oh, my God, how could they be so irresponsible? I, I suddenly became a social conservative. Like, oh, my God, they, they should not have done that. They, they, they should have been taken more care. And, you know, I, I caught myself after a few seconds. And it's like, it's like yeah, that, that's, that is what it's like inside the head of a social conservative who you know, looks at like single uh, mothers getting pregnant and stuff like that or anything along those lines. And, uh, you know, it's the exact same narrative. And I wasn't sure, you know, how to sort of reckon, to square that with my sort of generally much more liberal pro-choice sort of attitudes uh, uh, towards, you know, women controlling their bodies and the, and so forth. So, yeah, I, I sort of wrestled with that in my, my own head a little bit. I'm not sure if, if that any of that hit with you guys. I just wondered how they had sex. Like... That's sometimes loud. Yeah, and you've clearly never had a, a roommate because yeah, if you had a roommate, you know, yeah, yeah, be to it. Uh, no, I, 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 no. Okay, uh, 
too much information now. <laughs> I just wondered about the, like, is there going to be a Quiet Place porn prequel where they have to be quiet like they can't even? They, they fucked at the waterfall, Jim. They fucked at the waterfall. Okay. All right. That, thank you. That explains it. All right. I'm done. <laughs> uh, plot hole. Uh, uh, yeah, I've done most of CinemaSins writing for them now. Uh, Garrett, you're not alone. It, it, it did bother me. Um, I didn't, I, I actually didn't feel bad about it either. I, in my head, I was thinking more along the lines, my, my whole MO for this, like my, I could not get out of my head thinking like the anxiety of the family, anxiety of the family. So in that context, I was thinking like, oh my God, if you make a single noise, you're going to get your whole family killed. Everybody's going to die. So that's the context in which I saw it. I was like, if you guys did this knowingly, like. I get it's, this is where we get into like these weird things. If it was an accident, that's one thing. But if they planned to do this, if this was something that they planned, I'm like, y'all really needed to have. You need to be underground, like you need to be at the center of the earth to 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 have this child because otherwise, you could potentially get your whole family killed. So it's more of an irresponsibility in the like. It's a very isolated sense of irresponsibility. Do you know what I mean? It's a it's a sort of very unique one off situation that puts like multiple lives at risk by having this child. Um, so I thought it was irresponsible. That's the position I take. I thought it was irresponsible through and through. And of course, again, there's a direct metaphor there to many women in a real situation. Women who are single mothers who already have children bringing another kid into the world literally does put their entire family at risk. It might not be possible for them to feed all their children, or much less send them all to college or something like that. So I, I think that that does track a real phenomenon in the world that people do have conflicting attitudes about. I suddenly changed my mind. I am now going to be normative and be an antinatalist. It's now normative. Now I now I think it's wrong to have kids. You right there, Garrett. It's it's over. Ben, you don't you don't agree. You think that Emily Blunt should it was it was not irresponsible for uh, for Krasinski and Emily Blunt to have their have their kid or what? Originally, I, I did agree. At first, my impression of that was like, holy crap, how could they decide to do this? I can't believe this. This is obviously the stupidest decision you could possibly make. Um, but thinking about this um, from their perspective, I think if, if you take their perspective a little bit, you know, we have a couple hours to watch this extremely stressful situation, but for them, this has become their new normal. Eventually things, you, you get sensitized to things, right? Um, I, I actually, bringing it back to the waterfall scene, that's probably a good argument to have something like that in there so that you don't get too sensitized to the, 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 the stress. But for them, that is their new normal. They live with this every single day, multiple years they have regular family issues that they deal with within the context of all these monsters and stuff. You know, I mean, they're having pity, like pithy arguments about, you know, the daughter wants to go on the trip with the dad and like, he's saying no. And yes, he has reasons for that, but she has this very normal sort of like teenagerish kind of response. You know, this kid wants to have his toy and yes, there are consequences for that, but it's a very normal sort of kid thing to do. You know, when I think about their decision to have a kid, I think it kind of falls into that same sort of line of thinking, you know, a normal couple, um, well, a, a married couple who, who wants to have kids, um, that's probably what they're going to do. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I use that normative language and that's, that's horrible of me. I apologize. Um, I probably don't want kids either. So I don't know why I'm saying normal. Anyway, it seems, it seems not unexpected. And if you take this to an existential place, are they truly living if they're thinking about the short term in such a way that they're they're only trying to survive, they're not really thinking about the long term, they're not thinking about living and propagating and so on and so forth, it just comes down to a, an attrition sort of thing at that point if they're not reproducing, right? 
I mean, it's honestly kind of the best possible decision they could make to attempt to, I think, repopulate after all of these people have been slaughtered. Otherwise, eventually, everyone's going to kind of die off. You sort of get a children of men phenomenon type thing happening. So, so then we have two conflicting values, it seems. On one hand, um, we have the responsibility of keep, keeping our entire family alive. On the other hand, we want to um, still, you know, we, we want the world to continue on and we want to be able to live our lives and not be, um, if, if I'm getting you wrong, Ben, let me know. You know, we, we, we don't just want to acquiesce to the situation that we're under. We also want to build. We don't just want to go backwards. We want to go forwards, right? So you have these two conflicting values. I would land on the side of being careful for however long it took for this to to finalize or to i mean if it's 10 years later i still wouldn't have i mean if for me it would i i don't see that as um letting them win so much as i see the weight for me is on caring for the family i do have for the people that i do have that are alive that value is so much higher to me and so much more weighted than you know, growing and not living a certain way. I mean, it's almost just an ideal in a sense. That's the value. It's like this ideal we should be, you know, we, we should continue to live on and we should, you know, and that that's not anything that's tangible in the way of watching your kid get ripped to shreds. Like that's tangible to me. So that's that's where I would weigh it, I guess. So now, Noah, you mentioned antinatalism, but actually there is something there that is uh, pretty, you, you, you mentioned it jokingly, but I think there's a sincere point there that's you know when you consider sort of overpopulation of the planet people having children arguably are putting the entire human race in danger so perhaps again i don't know if this was a intentioned metaphor on the part of the filmmakers but i think it's it's, it's pretty clearly not that deep of a, of a reading uh that's you know people who are having children even if they can provide for them themselves are being irresponsible in the way with, with regard to the weight that they're putting on the rest of the species yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Go, go ahead, Jim. I, I, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, Noah, even in what you were saying, you were talking about how, it, you know, I would I would care for the immediate future until this ends. But that's assuming that there's an end to this. That's assuming that the U.S. military has got a plan or that's assuming that that there's going to be some sort of end to the monsters. Maybe. So even if it doesn't end. I mean, I'd go so far as to say even if it doesn't end, then you just don't have kids. You I mean, just and, and like this is your playing Monopoly with cotton balls is your life. This is your this is your life now. Yeah, I mean, I'd rather I'd take the hit for my family. I guess what I'm saying, like I'd take the hit. I mean, because like, is the risk really worth losing everything you've built prior? Really? Like, you know, is losing a mod? I, I shouldn't say a modicum of the life you've had before. If it is losing a good portion of your day-to-day -day existence before the monsters attacked and the sort of life that you lived, is that sort of thing more valuable than the three children that you've raised? No, not to me. Well, what if they, I mean, again, this is something that occurred to me, is what, what if they actually set up camp at the base of the waterfall? What if they had her give birth at the waterfall, they raised the child at the waterfall? I mean, that would obviously be challenging, have other challenges, but I think that, given that they set up how safe the waterfall was, which, by the way, I did think of a waterfall prior to them showing that. I thought that would be a safe place to be, and so I was kind of glad that I called that one advance. Um, but I, I, I was imagining that that was what they were going to do. They were going to have her give birth at the waterfall because that would be the only safe place that she could do it. Um, and so, uh, or I mean, maybe not necessarily the waterfall. What if they had put more work into soundproofing the basement or they established that the, that the ba basement was a safer place beforehand? I mean, 
you, we, this is what it we would certainly, yeah, yeah. I, in my mind, it would certainly make it, le it, the weights would start to tip, right? It would start to tip the other way. I, that's totally true. Um, I, I'd, st I'd still, I, I'd still wig out a little bit if I was John, you know what I'm like? I'd still be a little like, I, even by the waterfall, just the creatures could be close by accident and just suddenly sense a frequency that's different. And although it's worked, the waterfall has worked every time before, it could be this time that it doesn't, right? There's still that option. Um, the baby's gonna cry at some point after you have it. I mean, <laughs> right? Like it's, you bring it home. So I think Garrett, if if um, if they had the kid at the waterfall, they still suffer some of the same problems. If they set up base near the waterfall, that would help. Would it change my mind? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but the way they did it now, I do think was, was demonstrably irresponsible. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna use stronger so language now to start a fight with you guys. Okay. Let's fight about it. Yeah, let's, let's bring out the claws and the teeth. <laughs> um, honestly, I mean, you're talking about things that they could potentially lose, but I, I would argue that they've already lost 80% of their everyday lives anyway. You know, they're not going to work. They're not driving around freely. They're not going on vacations. They probably have a five mile radius, probably pretty close to that town that they have to sneak into to get medicine. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they lost their one son. They, they lost the son already. Um, but wouldn't that put an emphasis on like not losing anything else? No, 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 like, no. I mean, that's, that's fear. Um, but there's like that, that 20% though, that they're losing also just a little more slowly. Right. I mean, like those monsters are eventually going to come in there and get you. Um, you know, people grow old and die. You know, what about their two kids? What are they going to do? Eventually, they're going to lose their parents and be all by themselves. And, you know, then maybe they live for a little while and then they're going to be gone, too. I mean, you've pretty much in that scenario, I think, already lost everything. It's just kind of the time frame you're thinking about that in. The only real way to win is to go back to business as usual and keep doing your thing. Now, as an individual, you know, of course, not everybody wants to have children and stuff like that. But if you're a family and that was your plan to begin with. I, I totally laud their efforts to not let themselves be defeated entirely by trying to have some semblance of what they would consider to be their ideal scenario. There is something truly optimistic about that decision. And it's, it's an optimism that is reflected in every single parent's decision to actually have a kid because every, I think every parent is aware of what the sort of concerns that Noah brought up before about the numerous ways in which it could go wrong. Um, and they choose to, to be a parent anyway. And there definitely is something appealing to that romanticism and that optimism to me. Um, the flip side to this, perhaps, and again, this occurred to me in the film, uh, uh, and actually it made me wonder if this might have been part of the, the inspiration for the film, is there's a, there's a true story, a real case, uh, and I hit my ethics students with this every semester, um, of a, a family, a Jewish family that was during the Holocaust that was hiding in a basement um, when the SS was upstairs searching the house, and uh, there was a baby that started to cry, uh, and they, they, they tried to, to calm the baby, and they couldn't, and so the question I asked my students is, do you smother the baby to save everyone else's life? G given that if the Nazis find th them down there, they will kill everyone, including the baby. Uh, so do you sacrifice the life of the one child to save everyone else's life? And my students always tear their hair out over this one, which is what makes it a great ethical dilemma. It was based on a real case. In the real case, they did actually smother the, the, the child and it's it's tragic and it's horrific. And I can imagine, you know, I mean, again, I'm not saying this happened, but I can imagine like John Krasinski or, or whoever the writers were, right? Uh, uh, the, whoever came up with the story, Brian Woods and Scott Beck, if they heard this story and thought, hey, we could do a horror movie on that concept. 
Yeah, it's certainly I've Garrett, I've heard that story. I think I heard that story in my in one of my philosophy classes a lot when I was in college, actually. Um, and it did feel like that was there was hovering around this film. You know what I mean? Uh, just for his so, so you know that I that I'd have killed the baby too, like immediately. I probably would have done it the moment I saw it, even if there were no not no, I'm just kidding. Uh yeah, no, I that I yeah. And I I maybe that's why I mean I I guess I'm so I the way I'm sort of answering all of these things, it seems to me that I'm placing a really heavy value on um the most people, like the current people, the people that are there, like life the, as it exists now, I guess. Um, and to me, that's that's something you've built if you're a head of a, yeah, self-preservation. Thank you, Ben. It's something you've, you've sort of, you've built not just for yourself, but for 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 your offspring. And, and that to me seems to be the thing to put the shield up around the most. Um, so I, I, I just, I can't help but take issue with with Ben's idea. And I get the optimism in it. I, optimism in it, I totally get it. Um, but I, I, I would sacrifice that. I would think it's the noble thing to do, to be honest with you, to sacrifice that, to put the brunt of the weight on the people that exist now to lose uh, uh, whatever things that you enjoyed about life could never to me be as important as that bond that you have with the, the, the your children. You know what I mean? I lose all of that shit, lose all of the break down and suffer, but still have your family. I think that to me is, I don't see that as cynicism. I, I don't think not having kids is cynicism so much as it is just um, being logical about the situation you're in. I don't know. I don't know. But aren't we, aren't we ignoring the fact that having a child is adding to that family? That, the, that having a child is actually a, an enhancement of the unit that you're trying to preserve. And, and I also think that we're not giving enough credit to these characters who were totally prepared to give birth to that child mm -hmm. in that house. Like they, they had the oxygen mask, they had the, the bathtub, they had, I, I mean, that was, that was a- They were prepared as prepared as they could be with what they had. I can already see Garrett being like, prepared. What are you yeah, talking no, about? I they, they they were definitely not prepared. I mean, I, I assume for the sake of argument that none of them had medical training. Otherwise, they, they, they would have had that. But still, the prospect of her going into, into early labor is something that should have been keenly on their minds. And Krasinski never should have left the farm that close to her due date. They should have been preparing for her and ready for her to give, give birth because early labor happens all the time. I mean, that is by defin, definition a high-risk pregnancy in any cons, uh, in any. Um, uh, understanding of the term. So I, I, I mean, again, I think this is a forgivable error, but, but uh, uh, since you mentioned it, Jim, it's the sort of thing that I, I disagree. I don't think they were as prepared as prepared could be. Well, I'm talking about the infrastructure in the house, not necessarily Krasinski leaving at the time that he did. Sure. I mean, I, he, I guess he shouldn't have left at that time, but um, I, I was, as, when her water broke, I was like, well, how the fuck are they going to deal with this? And sure enough, going back to some of the things I was talking about um, in my opening, um, they had shown us how they were going to deal with this along, uh, uh, throughout the, the, the first and second acts of the film. And I didn't really know how it was all going to get put together until it got put together. Uh, I mostly didn't know how it was all going to get put together until it got put together. And so that, in that sense, that's, that's what I meant when I said that they were prepared, but yeah, I, I fair play that, uh, that he shouldn't have left at the time he did. Yeah. 
this is the same family that had the picture frames, guys. I'm just going to keep throwing that, peppering that in there throughout this conversation. So, um, maybe, Noah, maybe that the taking that's not their house, right? They're, that's a house that they found. So maybe the idea of taking down the pic, picture frames was more uh, was more risky than than uh, leaving them up. Okay. Um, I, I, I want to throw back. Um, uh, John Krasinski mentioned that an influence for this film that he had actually was was uh, uh, Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, um, which you know when you sort of think about it that way, the, the, the same sorts of conversations that we've been having apply to that film, right? Sort of uh, loving the child, but also being afraid about the existence of the child and so forth. So there's a, there's a nice parallel there. Um, but Jim, since you brought lines as he was. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, so, since you brought up the other house, one thing which I didn't understand about the movie, and I'm hoping one of you guys can explain it to me, is why didn't Krasinski want his daughter to go down into the basement? Why was he so concerned about keeping her out of there? We're all stumped on that one. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was trying to. Th I'm trying to think of a reason the story offers, and it was really just. It was almost like one of those parenting things, like you can't go into dad's room, that sort of shit. But they really didn't offer a. You would think that in a life or death scenario like this, they'd at least need oh, to know. I don't know. I, uh, so she's deaf, right? So she, and there's a lot of sound equipment down there. Um, she could trigger something without her knowing that she had triggered something which would then put the family at risk. That, that's so, a reason for her not to go down alone, maybe, but it's not a reason for her not to go down at all. I mean, again, he, he was obviously very protective of her and she had never been down there before until at the very end. It was the first time she went down there. You see, she's learning all the things about the aliens that they've, com or that they've compiled and so forth. Um, so Maybe trying to shield her from like the you know, like the uh, the brutality of it all, which seems crazy because she watched her brother. You know, it's like, I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I mean, it clearly was a protective instinct. He was being a father to her. And he also, you know, I, I, I can understand why he didn't take her out into the world the way he, he took his son. It's kind of a little sort of a sexist, chauvinistic thing that the, the men are going to protect and provide and the women are going to stay home. But it's, at least that, that's a plausible enough psychology that I can get behind it. But the, the not letting her into the basement, that puzzled me. Yeah, that's yeah, the best weird. I can offer is my my she might have done something and wouldn't have known that she done it she did it. That's my only that's my only uh uh answer to that. And even then I guess you might be right that yeah, that makes sense. Uh, both both sides make sense. Go ahead, uh no, what are you gonna I, I just had like a mind blown moment. So we were just talking about so I think I can connect two things. Hear me out. Um, ben and I think to some extent Jim, you know, had had mentioned something like growing the family as as a kind of optimism as a good thing and and stuff. But and I'm sitting here talking about how dangerous it is. And when you think about it, the picture frames are actually a great metaphor for that. They're dangerous. They can fall. They can hang there. But there's a lot of them, right? And they're empty. I don't know if you you notice that when you're watching the film. Uh, the I go go back and watch the film, Garrett. The uh, there's a scene where they're going. It has to do whenever they're going up the stairs at one point of the home, and the picture frames are empty. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot. So it, it, the insinuation is they, they whoever left the house took all the pictures, right? Um, but there's a lot of frames, and so th this idea is like there's there's room for danger, but it's worth it. That sort of thing, maybe. I, it, maybe I'm being way too poetic, but I'm trying to tie together those things. I mean, I there there is this. So we're talking about all of the same things. We're talking about something that is to most people an in, you know an intensely good 
positive thing, having a child, right? But it's also a dangerous thing. It's also something that can fall and break like a picture frame. It's something that is 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 dangerous, but good. So I think that there's some of that in the movie and maybe that's what, maybe that's what the, I'm, look, I'm trying to explain the damn picture frames. That's what I'm trying to do right now. All right, I'm trying my best. That's all I got. This is the deadly analysis of picture frames podcast. Yeah, this is going to be the the thumbnail on YouTube will be all of us in a picture frame. That's what's that's what it's going to be. <laughs> like the be. ordinary people trailer. <laughs> so I was going to I was going to ask. Oh, go it's ahead. Go. I'm good. sorry, Ben. It seems like a good um, metaphor for the not going downstairs thing, too. Right. You know, I mean, it's almost like too much caution will get you killed. You know, <laughs> they didn't let her down there. They didn't let the kids down there to see all this information. But as soon as that daughter sees all this stuff, she like puts it together immediately. And suddenly you've got this viable solution for saving the human race. Toxic masculinity puts the entire human race at danger yet again. It's the whole point of the movie. The whole point of the film right there. Well, I don't know if she would have discovered all that she discovered at the it, like if she had gone down there three weeks ago, I don't think she would have been able to put two and two together the way she did at the end. Like it was a confluence of events that require that that put all of the puzzle pieces in the right order for her. So, uh, I, you know, as I'm a, I'm as against toxic masculinity as the next feminist, but it's uh, let's let's measure our our criticisms for a second. Um, yeah, no, truly, and again, just in the interest of minor little criticisms, the idea of a sonic weapon is something that occurred to me very early on. I mean, I I don't know that they would have had the resources necessarily to put something together, but I'm surprised the military didn't. That seems like something the military could have figured out. Well, the military, with all their guns and ammo and grenades and all that stuff, they probably were the first ones to go. But they have sonic weapons, though they do. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they exist. So that was that was honestly one of my biggest gripes as well was the fact that eventually at the very end of this movie, you know, yes, you have your sonic device that weakens the monster, but the answer is a gun. Are you serious? <laughs> they shoot this thing and it dies, and then they realize what they can do. Their armor, listen, they have, the, the monsters are supposed to have some kind of armor. Their armor can't be that thick. And honestly. and it, it did like sort of modulate on its own too, right? I mean, you know, yeah. the, the, the Sonic made it all open wide up so the shotgun could take it out. But it, whenever they're hunting you, times when it, on its own, it was opening up and a shotgun to the blast to the head could have worked then too. I just, I couldn't buy it. Yeah. I mean, there definitely had to have been, if, if a military solution is what they found at the end of the movie, which, you know, by the way, I'm sure the NRA, you know, would absolutely loved, loved the way that turned out. But yeah, I mean, the U.S. military <laughs> with whatever weapons that they have probably could have had something that would have defeated these monsters early on. You know, yes, there was this early attack. You know, nobody knew where they came from. They came out of nowhere. Um, but I, the believability there is quite low. Yeah, I, I sort of agree. But again, to me, that's like such a, you know, the minor criticisms, which I can totally overlook because of the overall quality of the film. So uh, I share the concern. It probably would have been better if, it, if the sonic feedback alone had caused the aliens head to explode. But yeah, minor, minor criticism. I, I, that, that's the kind of thing where I can, I, maybe Krasinski's original script, that's what it was. But some producer came in and said, I want to see a shotgun blast blow the alien's head off. And he's like, fine, okay, give me another million dollars and I'll do it. Yeah, he's got like an arm the teach the arm the teachers t-shirt as he's editing the film. Yeah, I can see that. And by the way, since I mentioned the producers, I want to note that this film has six stars, six total characters in the film, and eleven producers. 
And that might, that's one of the few times I've seen that kind of ratio. So what other what other horror films, or maybe even just what other films can we think of that have something similar where there's a, a character with a disability that maybe uh, that where it turns into an, an asset as opposed to such a, well, an obvious liability and it ends up saving them in the end. Do we know of any other, like, can you give me any other films like this? I can't actually, not a horror film, but uh, the movie Happy Feet is, an, is, a, is the film I use as the example of the social construction of disability. Because in Happy Feet, the character Mumble uh, can't sing. You know, everyone in his tribe of penguins sings and he can't, so he's disabled in that society. And then later in the film, he goes to a different tribe of penguins and those penguins don't sing and instead they dance. And Mumble is an excellent dancer. And so just, you know, it's a fantastic way of showing how, whether or not a condition is considered a disability or not, depends on the social context in which a person finds himself. We are probably the only podcast that have connected Happy Feet to A Quiet Place. I just want to throw that out there. It's quite novel. I, I definitely want to say that Ash and Army of Darkness lost a hand, um, but it was only able to wield a chainsaw because of that disability. Groovy. <laughs> well played. That's a good answer. Um, I, I have... Yeah, go, go ahead, Jim. I was going to say hush, hush, but there's no, it's not really, a, 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 it's more of a liability than an asset in hush, but it's the other one where there's a deaf woman being stalked by a man who's just kind of playing cat and mouse in her house and she's deaf and it's pretty fucking scary. And since you mentioned hush, the Buffy the Vampire episode, Slayer episode, hush, similar concept, right? And everyone loses the power to speak and they have to communicate in other ways. That was one of the most terrifying episodes of any show I've ever seen. I, uh, for those who, don't know most of you don't know i hadn't seen buffy the vampire slayer till la till this last year i like turned in my nerd card i just i don't i just never saw it when it came out and everyone told me when you get to this episode there's a few episodes but one of them was hush my wife says it's the scariest one and i watched it and i'm like okay you guys are leading up to this whenever people lead up to it and you hear that enough you it's not as scary dude i could not sleep i was so bothered i felt so just ah, like i it and it, you're right garrett it, it has this uh, the same theme of of losing this what is such an obviously important um, facet to how we communicate with one another and just just by virtue of losing that the sort of uh, the, the sort of things that can arise the fears that happen the things that you can't do um, it, it was a really scary episode but yeah I hush came to mind I don't know what else happy feet I don't I can't I don't know how we're gonna get past uh, happy feet uh, my answer to your question is is um, yeah, well. I mean, I was thinking about Sherlock and um, Monk, how they are both portrayed, well, Sherlock is portrayed in the uh, the newest iteration as relatively autistic, at least, you know, to some degree on the spectrum. Um, sociopath. And, and a sociopath. And Monk uh, has obsessive compulsive disorder. Both of them are used in, as, as as kind of superpowers, um, the, you know, Monk's ability to solve crimes because he doesn't, because he sees how things are out of order, Sherlock's ability to not care about human, you know, uh, to only function as a logical being allows him to solve crimes. Um, those are two, those are behavioral disorders that are often characterized as, as disabilities and yet social construction of disability within the context of these shows, they're considered to be, you know, sort of superpowers. I, I would, I think that that 
that certainly answers your question and 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 leads to interesting conversation as it was as it uh, relates to those two conditions uh, OCD and and sociopathy slash uh, autism um, or as uh, spectrum dis Any other thoughts about the film you guys want to add? Well, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit, and this is both um, a, a criticism, and both a negative of the film and uh, a positive of the film. I thought that there were moments when the, the camera was too heavy-handed in setting up the uh in in giving the audience information that the characters didn't know so the extreme close-up on the nail i was like well shit we know when this is gonna hit and you know the same thing with there was uh she's adjusting her cochlear implant um when when uh the alien is behind her she doesn't see it and then we see about this uh, about the the sound being created, and I thought that was so. Then when we're, later on, when we're in the corn silo, um, we're we're smarter than the characters, so we know that she should turn that thing on to get that guy, get the alien the the fuck out of there. But that's it, like I wonder if there were better ways to handle those two beats of the film, in which I thought there were. It was giving me too much information. Or it was either giving me the information too heavy-handed, or it was giving me too much information so that I was not, um, so that I didn't get the proper suspense and the proper like the the maximum amount of suspense and the maximum emotional reaction that I could have gotten out of that silo scene if I didn't know that she had a way out. Um, I almost think that that would have been the better reveal for the uh, for the sonic weapon um, than than earlier, but I was wondering how you guys uh, responded to that, like if you guys agreed or disagreed. Honestly, I, I kind of appreciated that we had that um, that pre-existing knowledge. There was a scene in the truck when the, the sound is happening, she can hear it, it's probably bothering the monster, but then she decides to turn it off. And the tension there that we received because we knew that the answer was to turn it on and turn it up as opposed to turning it off, I, I think that made that a lot better. Um, that's, um, I, I, I really think, I, I know this isn't the movie they wanted to make, but I think if they had given you the knowledge of what the solution could be, but then showed you how they didn't quite get there and it became a tragedy <laughs> and ended poorly, I think that would have been a much power, more powerful horror movie. I know it's not the movie they wanted to make because it probably would have shown um, you know, that what they were trying to do in more, in more of a negative light, obviously. Um, it's not the movie they wanted to make, but I think it would have been a much better horror film if we had had that knowledge and then it just didn't turn out well. I thought you were an optimist. Now here you are trying to remove hope. Really? I, I, I I'm just, uh, I'm just throwing a wrench in, in <laughs> counter arguments, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, Jim, I gotta say that particular point didn't bother me too much. Uh, it, it actually didn't bother me at all. It didn't. It didn't really occur to me at all. Uh, had the film been different, it might have been more effective. Now that I'm reflecting on it after the fact, um, but I don't imagine it would have been that much more effective. But something along the same lines. And again, I don't want to distract from your point, Jim. So this is to, to add to it. So we can maybe talk about both these things. One of the things which I did wonder is 
I kind of didn't want to see the creatures. I think the, I mean, it's a sort of standard Hitchcockian rule, right? It's it, what you don't see is scarier than what you do. And, you know, early on in the film, you know, you only get sort of these passing glimpses of it. And I thought that was a lot more effective at scaring me than when you actually get to see it all sort of teeth and ears and stuff like that. Now, obviously, if you did go back to try to sort of, you know, almost not shoot at all, it would require a lot of different camera work and stuff like that. But I think the same basic structure could be taken place. Same basic plot points could all be hit. Uh, but you simply never would get a good look of, at the creature. And I think that would have worked better. So I want to I want to agree with you. I think that's absolutely true. I'm a huge fan of that. Just give you enough, you know, to get you by sort of thing in horror. However, I think that the reason they did that is that at some point there's go they're going to tie in the sort of Cloverfield lore into all of these films. And I don't know if you noticed this, but I I'm one of like maybe the eight people on the planet that liked the original Cloverfield uh, film. I, there's not many people that like it. But one of the things you'll notice and this is where I get all like into like, how are these films connected? Um. In the original Cloverfield uh, film, the the entities that drop off of the large Cloverfield beast look very similar to the monsters that are in this movie. Um, and I know that there is a there's supposed to be a connection between Cloverfield, Cloverfield Lane, uh, that Netflix Cloverfield movie, and then this film. Um, I, I know that there's there's talks of trying to tie them all together in like an actual movie, um, but uh, it's supposed to exist in the same universe i can kind of explain how garrett looks really flummoxed like what yeah no this is the first i'm hearing of it which so is i don't want to blow the netflix special but that or the, not special the movie on netflix but that sort of explains how all of these things happen so if you haven't seen it i'm not going to blow it for you but I it, saw it, it, I thought it was terrible it, it was it, it is terrible right but like the idea of like um you know, creating multiple, essentially multiple realities where these beings can get thrust into them is the idea. But um, those beings look very similar to the ones in the original Cloverfield. So I think it might, to, to go back to answering your, like why, why would, you know, why would they show them or it was it better to show them or not? They may have done it just because at some point they may tie all these together and show you that the creatures are similar to that. To now, that is that theory. just speculation? Your part? Because it, it's all, well, dude, I mean, it's like the internet. It's all over the internet. Right. Like, I mean, Reddit threads upon Reddit threads for this, but yes, Cloverfield it is. Cloverfield Universe is all J.J. Abrams and he was not a part of this film yep. at all. No, no, but it's, it's, it's all speculation at this point, but I, I, it would not surprise me at all if they do that. I also yeah. like the first Cloverfield film, although I thought the second one was better and the third one was, was terrible. Yeah, the first one I thought was very underrated. Um, a lot of people like walked out because they were like throwing up or something. I don't know. Jim, you've thrown up in movies. Did you throw up in Cloverfield? Did you no, I only, I only throw up when people put non-food items in their mouths. That's right. I was about to put some scissors in my mouth just to see what yeah, happens. And, with... and then, then I'd, I'd shut you off. But actually, I was reading... Um, uh, on IMDb, they have a quote from one of the producers about the Cloverfield connection. Oh. And he says in filmmakers, uh, we crave new and original ideas. And we feel like so much as uh, what's out there is IP. It's comic books, it's remakes, it's sequels. We show up to all of them. We enjoy those movies too. But our dream, this is the relevant part, was always to drop something different into the marketplace. We So we feel grateful that Paramount embraced the movie as its own thing. So uh, the internet can speculate. And in fact, it's entirely possible that, that this is uh, not 
you know, when has a producer ever lied to the media? God knows that's not <laughs> uh, But according to this particular quote, this is not tied to the Cloverfield uh, bit, but there was uh, previous in the, the, the IMDB thing, it did say that um, there was original speculation that mm -hmm. when the script was being shot that they should tie it into Cloverfield. So I wonder, I wonder if if they're they're gauging the success of this film and thinking, well, let's show the monsters and make them somewhat some because they do look really similar to the ones in Cloverfield. So I wonder if there's like testing the waters to be like, hey, maybe we can do another movie and maybe make it even more Cloverfieldian or whatever. Well, year to date, this is number three, and yeah. Yeah. until yeah, yeah I, until Infinity War popped, this was number two. So it was Black Panther this and it had just outgrossed i believe it was rampage but i could be mistaken about that or no no not rampage but it just it it, it had just outgrossed another uh film i'm i'm sorry i'm stalling so that i can uh check my charts my box office charts um <laughs> but it's uh, well, looking that up jim one thing to Ready keep in mind yeah okay, mm. fine. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that uh, unlike Ready Player One or Black Panther uh, or uh, um, Avengers, this was a $17 million film budget, uh, and it's made over $217 million worldwide. What? Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, in terms of ROI, this is easily the most profitable film of the year. Um, it, it still hasn't passed Get Out, uh, but but that was that was last year. I think there was a $5 million film, I think, that made like 250 million, something like that. So um, uh, that's still one of the best ROIs since uh, a Blair Witch Project. But, uh, uh, you know, anytime you can invest $17 million and make $217 million, that is a, a picture book of success, even if it's not making as much as Avengers. Yeah, worldwide. It's uh, it's according to last week's box office, it was um, in the 130s, second place behind uh, Black Panther. And then, of course, Avengers Infinity War blew the whole thing out of the water. So. Uh, that's that's number two below Black Panther. Yeah. One, one thirty is just the dom the domestic gross, the worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think uh, apparently they they have green lighted a sequel, I guess, or at least another film. I'm not sure if it's gonna be, maybe be a prequel or other than a sequel or something like that. Um, but you know, I, I think my porn uh, prequel. <laughs> Your porn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think Krasinski. I mean, I, I can't I can't say I was necessarily a, a terribly big fan of his before this. I've seen him in several things, of course, The Office um, and Leatherheads and a couple other films. And you know, I never disliked him, but I never particularly liked him. But uh, I gotta say, I'm very curious to see where he's going to go from here now that he's hopefully got a blank check and a lot more uh, uh, weight behind him because this, this was, I was really impressed with this. It's, it's very similar to get out with, with uh, uh, Jordan Peele, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something about like comedy writers doing horror and hitting a nerve. How odd is that? That's so weird. Yeah. I mean, and like really like well done horror films that are doing really good in the box office and everyone's going to see them. I mean, it's just kind of cool to be in a time where like, we're having horror films do that, you know, and they're actually good horror films. I don't know. I feel like it's a good time for horror. Well, it's a good time for horror. I, I especially with some of the new producers and new talents coming on the, the marketplace. Jason Blum is doing a lot for horror. Um, as except, for that, except for that last film he just did. Well, yeah, Truth yeah. or Dare. Um, hey, if you, you throw a bunch of, uh, you throw a bunch at the, up the flagpole, sometimes nobody's going to salute one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's a connection between being good at comedy and being good at horror. 
Um, like, is there something similar about those two art forms that make it make the cross pollination fairly easy for people? I don't know. What do you What do you guys think? Both, both fear and humor are human universals. They cut across and exist in all cultures. Yeah, I certainly. Um, but I I wonder if there's there's some, one of the things that sort of may that I'm kind of making a connection with is like both rely upon surprise. Like both rely upon pulling the rug out from under you. The punchline is supposed to be the moment when you're like, I wasn't expecting that. And then the horror film, it's like, oh, fuck, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and so I, I wonder if those two art forms have a, a really interesting Venn diagram, you know, would Robin Williams have been a really good horror film? Uh, uh, he he played in a couple of horror films. Yeah, that's right. Um, one hour photo and one hour photo, right? And then uh, um, insomnia. Insomnia. Yeah, both were not the best. <laughs> I, I I liked. I thought one hour photo was 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 pretty solid. Uh, I mean, definitely more atmospheric, but uh, uh, I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I think I think to connect comedy and horror, there's something about like writing the rift in both genres. There's something like it's it's the notes you don't hear in comedy. It's like you, these intuitions, I think, are the same things. Or there's something about they they resonate with some deep part of who we are. Like, oh yeah, I noticed that too. And then oh oh yeah, like that is shit. That is a kind of scary thing to think about. Or just it it it's something that penetrates the skin. You know what I mean? It's it goes under. It it reaches something deeper. And I, I mean, I guess you and to some extent you can say that about a lot of different genres. But I feel like those two do something similar they hit the same funny bone i don't know but uh yeah um we need to do one on get out guys i mean this may this this seems to be a trend in 2019 we're gonna have another comedy writer we're gonna have like jay leno does the best horror film in 2019 or something yeah can you imagine like if that happens there's this just postmodernism writ large like there's no there's no reason to Kevin go to movies and... done a couple of horror films he's another guy yeah. in, uh, in comedy yeah, and I, I I will do what you just I he uh, I'm gonna do what Jim just did. His horror films have been terrible. The fucking Walrus one was one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. <clears throat> but yeah, uh, Justin Long was in had its moments, but yeah, as a whole, it, it it was it was lesser Smith, but it it had its moments that I liked. Yeah, but yeah, um, but yeah, uh, you know, get out and then. Um, you know, who knows John Mulaney's next uh, horror film next year. Um, I think one of the things that's, uh, and this is for, I don't know exactly what the tone of this film is, whether it's going to be horror film or not, uh, but it's certainly far more serious. Bull Burnham did a film called Eighth Grade that is tearing up Sundance. Um, so that might actually be uh, one that we'll, we'll watch out for when it comes out uh, in wide release. That's good to know. Um, am I the only one who thinks that we should cast John Krasinski in the film adaptation of The Last of Us? Oh, I mean, that would be cool. That he, would be cool. He, looked, he very much looked the part in this. Are they doing, do you actually, know? it would be a perfect film to do. Do you know if they're going to do a film adaptation of The Last of Us? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. I kind of hope they don't. I think it's, it's, it stands yeah. alone really so well yeah. as a video game that, you know, and it, it, it's, it hits emotionally like a film. It's the kind of thing that elevates the genre of video games to a higher art form, I feel. And translating into a film, I think, would sort of cheapen that. For every video game that you can say that of, they've made a film of it and just yeah. have butchered it. Final Fantasy, Resident, all of them, all of them, all of them. All right, let's wrap it up. Let's give our, our final thoughts. Unless you guys have anything else you guys want to add. Any any other stuff? Okay. Yeah, so I guess, um, so I'll give my final thoughts on the film first. Um, 
overall, it's um, might be one of the I, it might be one of the better films of the year. Definitely. Um, I it, it didn't have super a lot of like a super replay value for me. I, I I it didn't scare me too much in terms of the monster, in terms of the stuff that it, I think it was trying to sell me, and in, in in terms of like the you know the trailers and the horror and the monsters. I, I what did it for me, and and I think this was to some extent in the trailers and in the film was was keeping your family together, and that just bugged me. Um, and you know what? If I was going through something different, I probably would have read that into the film too. So who the hell knows? But uh, overall, good film, uh, amazing uh, uh, acting as well as directing on the on the part of John Krasinski. I loved some of the the stuff that was novel in the film, like having a, a deaf actress and removing all of the sound and hearing my stomach growl in the middle of the movie and popcorn being chomped on that made me all the more tense. That was really weird. I have not had an experience like that in going to the theater maybe ever. Uh, it was very strange. So there was a lot of tension, good buildup. Um, film has sins like every other film. Um, wasn't, didn't hit my, the, the real root of I think what scares me. It hit something I think that's current stuff I'm thinking about and made me think about it in a different way. Uh, made me ponder things I don't like necessarily thinking about. So I'll give it like, if we're going to do the the four stars, I'd give it a solid three. Uh, I'd give it a solid three out of uh, uh, five stars. Nothing, you know, didn't good film, but not the sort of thing that is like um, going to make me not be able to fall asleep at night. The tension went away. One of the things I, I for me, what makes a part of like what I mean when I say a scary movie is I'm still bugged about something about it later, thinking about it later. And this film didn't have too much of that. I just thought about the kids stuff during the film I left didn't really sit with me or change it. You know, it just didn't have the the deep resonance that lasts long after the movie's over in the way that some of the other films that we've talked about, maybe Sunshine, It Follows, uh, Let the Right One In. Those have bugged me since I've seen them. Event Horizon, that's probably the king of them, the king of all of them. Um, but that's not to say that didn't make this a, a good horror film. So good horror film, not the best horror film, one of the better ones of, of this year. Uh, and I would recommend it. That's a three stars. Guess I'll jump in next. Um, yeah, I again overall liked the film. I thought it was very well made. Um, uh, technical points, I think, were all very solid. I share some of Ben's reservations about it, sort of being the basic plot being a little uh, twice told uh, a, a story I've seen before. I kind of would have liked them if they if, if them to have raised the stakes at some point a little bit more. Um, I also didn't feel I wasn't scared by the film but i thought the tension was great and you know it's, it's it was a film i think that, that that was almost had better tension rather than fear um it was obviously a close relationship there but yeah there's 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 nothing nothing you know, going to keep you up at night about this when you could watch it and then fall right to sleep i think um but uh uh that's i don't really consider that a criticism i don't think the film was necessarily trying to scare in that way um uh, i think it was just trying to keep you on the edge of your seat yeah i heard every single chair in the audience i heard every single person uh, eating their popcorn that was an experience i've never had in, in a theater always never with quite such so much of an awareness across the the, the duration of the entire film um so that was uh, truly solid and impressive um some other minor critiques like i said but they're all sort of nitpicky stuff nothing that really detracts from the film overall um so yeah i, I i'd give this a four, four stars out of five uh, i think it's a very solid film my score is lower than yours that is the first time that has ever happened in this i know for a fact that is really interesting. 
Well, your score is uh, half a point lower than mine, too. Uh, I am 3.5 on this. Uh, that was, uh, I, yeah, so I think this film, I, I said it at the outset of, you know, third for the second time. Um, it's a great genre film, technically very well done. Uh, sound design, as I said, I'm calling it sound design, Oscar, uh, sound and sound mixing Oscar, certainly sound mixing uh, Oscar nomination, at least probably win. Um, and I am, uh, I, I thought that the, the technical side of this was, was incredibly well done. I think some of the, the points that Ben brought up about his plot being relatively pedestrian is that's what I mean when I say it's a solid genre film. It's a perfectly well-made genre film. Um, it's not reaching for that much higher, although I do like some of the, uh, uh, anti-natalist uh, messages that we've sort of teased out in this podcast. Um, I wonder how much John Krasinski would, how much John Krasinski was thinking about those types of things as he was, as he was uh, crafting this film. But um, yeah, so I didn't, I, but those, those themes didn't really resonate with me to the point where I was like, oh, this is clearly about that. And wow, look at the interesting thing it has to say about that. Instead, it's just sort of, it, it's sort of uh, touching on those issues rather than giving them full exploration. So for that, for that reason, it's a, it's a uh, well-made genre film. Um, and that's not nothing against genre films again. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was how this film paces out information. It is a it, it, if it will be studied in film schools, it will be studied as a how to craft suspense or like how suspense works in film. And there were times in this movie where it really got that. It, it, it really did everything perfectly. And then there were other times when it was like, ah, you telegraph in a little bit too much too quickly there you. Um, so those were the, those were my, my minor criticisms, which brought it down, well, which, which brought it to a, uh, a 3.5 for me. Uh, ben, what did you think? I, I suspect you might be lower than even Noah. I don't know if I'm going to be lower than Noah or not. My my honest feeling about this is that it's um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I think three probably makes sense for this. Um, it's it, it's a familiar story that was done really well, right? You know, I mean, it was really interesting to see Jim uh, Kaczynski, Krasinski. Yeah, uh, Jim. I don't know if it's his first time directing or not, but if it is. It seems like he did a really good job. Um, John Krasinski, third film. Third film. Okay. Well, for his third, then it absolutely sucks, and I have no remorse. <laughs> um, no, like I mean, there, there, there's a lot that they did really well, right? I mean, it really just didn't get to me very much. I mean, it was interesting in a lot of ways that you've already explained. Um, but you know, as far as any kind of like real lasting power, like Noah was saying, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be something that I think about in five years. Like, man, I really want to go back and watch that film. You know, I just I want to see what was there. I want to dig into this more. I don't think there's much more to really dig into, right? Um, so for the fact that it was quality and it was entertaining and they did some really interesting, some novel things, um, you know, it has some social relevance and some power there. But I, I don't think the substance is as, as weighty um, as I would like it to be. So, uh, yeah, I, really, I, I think three makes sense for this. Middle of the line. Thank you for watching this episode of the Deadly Analysis podcast. Um, you know, the, our next episode will likely, be on, um, will likely be on Hereditary. I don't want to uh, nail that down now, but it will likely be the next one we do. That's coming out, I think, in the next few weeks. Um, but if you like what you saw tonight, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
Uh, we're still alive. It's not not a quiet place over there for the most part, at least on Instagram and Twitter. So hit us up uh, if you like what you saw. Leave a comment. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Are kids bad? Should we not have them when there's aliens trying to attack us? What the hell's going on with those picture frames? Give us your two cents. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, thanks for watching and uh, uh, tune in the next show. Appreciate it.